Today's episode of A Fool's Idea, the audio podcast, is sponsored in part by tormented English poets who write famous pre-romantic masterpieces. I want to start this podcast off by telling you that David Bridell has an awesome one-man show called Sublimity, with two performances coming up in L.A. September 22nd and 29th at the Lyric Hyperion Theater. He's also got another performance coming up in New York City October 5th at Theater Row. So if you like what you hear, if you're intrigued at all by our wonderful conversation, go see his show and support some brilliant creativity, art, comedy, and clown. Also, if you like what you hear on the podcast, Please share it on Facebook, rate it on iTunes, write a review about how much you like it, tell someone that reviews podcasts about it. Please help us get the word out as much as possible. Thank you. Welcome to the Fool's Idea Audio Podcast, the show where you get to hear me awkwardly fumble my way through interviews with some of the most interesting artists, performers, physical comedians, teachers, and clowns from around the world. On the podcast today, we sat down with one of the co-founders of the Clown School in L.A., educator, choreographer, director, and performer, David Bridell. We talk about teaching clowns, opening up, defining clown, colorphobia, and somehow even got around to sharing our 9-11 stories. So strap on your red noses, because this one might be educational. Clown is free. Clown is life. Okay, we're going. All right. So, um, we're here with David Bridell, and we're going to talk some clown stuff. Yes, we are. So, uh, if you could introduce yourself a bit to the listeners about who you are and what you've been up to. Sure. I'm David Bridell. Um, I run the Clown School here in Los Angeles, which is a school for um, clowns at the beginning level and those who have also been doing it for some time. Uh, school's about five years old. I started it with a very dear friend of mine and colleague called Orlando Pabotoy, who's now in New York. And um, initially we just began with a few workshops here and there, but uh, in the last few years uh, it's turned into a very regular, consistent business and artistic venture. Um, so that's what's a lot of what's going on for me at the moment is related to clown school. Um, we're currently in session with a class. We have another one starting real soon. Uh, and it's sort of opened out widely for me as well. I have travels to Australia and Brazil on clown school business this summer and a bit later on this year into, uh, to China as well. So it's turned into a kind of an international uh, concern. Um, so that's, that's where I am now. I started clowning a long time ago, about 20 years ago or a little longer. Let's start even a little bit before that. Oh, sure. With with when did you first discover what a clown was? Well, it would have been at that time. Um, I mean, you know, I was a fan of comedy like any self-respecting human being for a long time, uh, as a kid growing up. And I, I loved people who I would now recognize as clowns, but then I didn't. I just thought it was funny. Uh, and then I went to university, and I did study the Commedia dell'arte and was introduced into the practical aspects of masked theater and the kind of comic archetypes from Commedia. So I had a kind of an academic appreciation for that. 
you didn't have any experience with clown prior to that no. via like a circus or N- i was a huge fan of archaos did you ever hear of archaos yes oh god they were brilliant um but i i only really met archaos when i was around that age in my early 20s and uh, we used to go to the edinburgh festival me and a gang of you know fellow vagabonds and we would watch our chaos and just think that was the coolest thing we'd ever seen in our lives and to this day it probably still is the coolest thing i ever saw in my life um anyway uh so i was introduced to clowning in that way yeah i wasn't even a big circus goer as a kid i I didn't see a lot of it anyway so uh directly after leaving college i went with a group of actors to a festival in france and there we met a woman by the name of Monica Pagnier, who was a, uh, we didn't really know who the hell she was at the time, but since I learned, she's an extremely famous movement teacher, and she uh, spent a long time at the Lecoq School in Paris. So uh, the festival was long, it was about three months long, and we studied with Monica every day, and it kind of certainly radically changed my view of what it meant to be an actor or, or even a theatrical artist of any kind. Anyway, at the end I said to her, oh my god this is amazing what do i do now and she said well you need to go and study with philippe who who's that i said she, <laughs> and she pointed me in the direction of philippe Gaulier. so at that time philippe had just opened his school in london so that was super easy for me because i left that festival went back to live in london where i just kind of set up base and i studied with philippe and then i learned what clowning was big time so where did you grow up I grew up just south of London. Uh, the nearest big town is called Guildford, but I was kind of in the country. Um, my my parents were not in the arts at all. The, my dad was an insurance broker and a pheasant shooter, and my mom was a housewife. And I had uh, I, I did have I have siblings, and my sister for a while was into circus, so I got a little taste of it uh, through her. But they were all she was older than me, and my brothers were older than me, so I didn't spend that much time with them. A lot of interest in theater from a young age, and I got into kind of mainstream theater very young. What well, what was that trigger point? Like, where where did you decide that you were interested in theater growing up in a very, I guess, blue-collar type of family? Yeah, yeah. I guess, uh, I think it probably was a combination of my sister getting interested in it, and she was seven years older than me, so I started to feel the pull of something exotic and mature when she went off to study um, theater at university. And also, I don't know, it's that sort of ineffable thing that happens to people when they figure out that they need a venue in which to express themselves, and then they go looking for it. And for some, it's, you know, the body and sports, and for others, it's the arts, and for others, it's, uh, you know, computing or whatever it might be. And for me... It turned out it was the stage, um, and I started acting when I was in high school, and I got bitten by that bug, and I figured out that was a place where I could be me, uh, you know, like all teens desperately want a place where they can I be mean, themselves. There, there is something interesting about that because you, you're attracted to the place where you can be me, but you're playing characters. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you what I will say about my upbringing. Not so much blue collar, but more your classical, repressed, emotional English family. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like it's in a thousand novels and it's uh, imagine Downton Abbey, but, you know, <laughs> in the 1970s and 80s, because it was very much, you know, you didn't really say anything about what you felt. 
you just kind of got along, got on with it and, you know, stiff up a lip and all that. And it, it was very old school. And to this day, my parents have both passed away, but I do have relatives, especially on my father's side. I have an old older uncle who is just a classic, is a cliche of what it meant to be an Englishman <laughs> from, you know, the middle of the 20th century. Still wears a derby? Uh, almost. And he goes fishing and, you know, and he speaks like this. It's kind of like he's got a stick in his ass and, you know. <laughs> Uh, he's unbelievably sweet, man. It, my, the favorite thing that he ever told me was I spoke to him on the phone once from the States when um, Giuliani was running for uh, the Republican nomination. In, I think it was 2008. And he said, to, out of nowhere, he, he said, what do you think of this Giuliani fellow? And I said, I don't know. I don't really like him. And he said, I think he's very good. I said, well, why do you think? I didn't know why he was even interested. I said, why do you think he's good? He said, because he's the only candidate that would ban the keeping of ferrets in New York City. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's my uncle to a T. So anyway, so I lived in that kind of world, very uh, repressed. And so acting was like, you know, it was like heroin. I was like, oh, my God, a place where I can feel something in public. So so did, did your parents eventually get what you were doing? Or was they, there always a bit of a disconnect? They got as close as they could. My dad was always – the furthest my dad would go as – as far as a career in the arts was concerned, was journalism, because he thought that there was still a kind of a veneer of respectability. Since then, I think he's been proved completely wrong. But anyway, <laughs> um, so uh, so I, I, he encouraged me to try that, you know. And I was always writing as a kid. To this day, I still am, you know, I enjoy creative writing of various kinds. So he thought journalism, I didn't do it. I went into theater instead, and, and he begrudgingly accepted that. And my mom was always a little more artistically inclined. Um, but there was a limit. One time I wrote a play about a very stiff upper lip English family that was quite successful in London. And when they came to see it, they were my mother was ashen faced throughout. And my dad had this fixed smile as if he really wasn't paying any attention. But, um, you know, they, they loved me dearly and they supported me. But I don't know that they ever really had quite the uh, same sensibility. You know, they had a different one, which was equally wonderful, but just not not that. Right, right, right. So. When you first entered uh, Philippe Galea's school mm. and you started really exploring clown, mm. what was it about that that you took to? What, well, why did that interest you so much that it eventually <clears throat> led to a career and you also teaching? Yeah. I think it's very psychological, I think, uh, for me. Um, I was, first of all, I was horrible in Galea's class. And he, had, he wastes no time in telling those horrible students how horrible they are. Um, so uh, I sucked big time. But I think I did recognize that there was something in the philosophy, specifically of clowning, which was waiting to embrace all those parts of you or me or anybody who does it uh, that, are, that are in fact failing, you know, that are kind of miserable and abject and in most parts of daily life we try and tuck them away. So to sort of celebrate your secrets, I bet I guess would be a, a good way of putting it. I, and I knew that was what Philippe was asking us to do. I wasn't really capable of it at that time. But that, that I think, was what was like the, the hook that caught me. And I became fascinated by it. And honestly, to start teaching it and practicing it as a director, I directed a whole bunch of clown shows, was my way of getting closer and closer to that magical area where 
things get revealed that you would normally conceal. Um, but as a performer, I only got to do that last year. You know, like 20 years after studying with Philippe, I finally stepped on the stage as a clown and, and dared to do it. So it took a long time in my case. So so, so you, you chose to teach, teach clown before you actually oh, started yeah. performing as clown. Yeah, big time. Um, how did... How did that work out in in your in your brain? Well, I mean, like, like like for for example, uh, for me, I f- I find it um, incredibly hard to justify myself teaching somebody anything mm. until I feel like I've had proof of concept myself. Yeah, understood. Well, uh, this the other thing about being English in the kind of sort of circle that I was raised is that we're very repressed and we also are super analytical and that's why you get so many directors coming out of Oxford or Cambridge who become you know internationally respected Mm -hmm. theatrical and then in fact movie directors Sam Mendes would be the perfect example so uh, so I always had that I had a very incisive kind of analytical mind and that meant that I could start directing pretty young and I was always fairly capable as a director. So for me, the teaching experience was um, validated by my directing experience. And uh, as, as a director, when I would kind of coach an actor into this choice or that choice and kind of move them through a play, I found that for, as a teacher, I was able to do something pretty similar. And it never worried me particularly that I wasn't necessarily an actor myself. Mm-hmm. Now that I've done it or started doing it more recently, I'm very happy. It's great. You know, I got to sort of taste the apple from all sides. But, um, yeah, I, I, I know that that's sort of a, uh, a kind of a value system that a lot of people hold, but I, it just just didn't bother me. Cool. Know? I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see it as one way is better no. or the other. It just yeah. it's like my, my own personal yeah. feeling. And it's also when you teach you learn so much more about what it is that you're doing no which kidding is pretty incredible too no kidding i just uh you know you gotta i don't know it's 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 a it's a a path that i just haven't cracked myself yet i mean i've taught people stuff yeah i've just i've never i've never been able to charge for people you know, right. charge to teach people stuff because it feels different you know yeah. like when you when you start charging there's like a different kind of responsibility behind that yeah that I haven't been able to crack. Well, I think, you know, there is, uh, and this is one of the reasons also for me that clowning is such a wonderful thing to practice as a teacher or anything as a performer. There, There is a technical element to it that, you know, it's skills-based. There's a lot of things that you can improve upon in order to get to a better standard. But there's, it's also an unbelievably sort of humane practice where you're asking the individual to, as I said before, to reveal themselves and to kind of... Um, take ownership of who they are all their quirks and kinks and idiosyncrasies so it's that part that really draws me like the study of human nature is just endlessly fascinating and no two people are the same and uh and so as a teacher i'm really inspired and intrigued by who it is that the person is in front of me and how can we help them to be themselves more publicly you know if that makes sense yeah yeah so i mean in, in addition to the clown school you also teach in the university yeah that's right we're sitting in right now we are yeah so what is it that you teach in addition to clowning 
I'm uh, here at USC. I'm the head of movement, so I'm responsible for uh, this is for a graduate program. So I'm responsible for the three year movement progression for graduate students, which does include clowning, but actually I don't teach it here. Um, I've, I have an incredible colleague. Oh, I don't know if you've met him, Matt Walker. You come I, across? I've not met oh, him. Oh, man, you've got to go chasing after Matt. He, he runs the Trubies, uh, and they are an L.A. based clown company, which is okay. uh, absolutely glorious and ridiculously stupid. And their shows are brilliant. Um, oh, and it's actually rather interesting because they they are clowns and they kind of cross section with the improv community here as well. So. Okay. Anyway, uh, so Matt is responsible for the clowning classes here at USC, but I I'm in charge of the whole thing. So a lot of my movement work is, um, uh, should we say, in this area when I'm teaching at USC doesn't have a comic goal behind it or isn't driven by comedy. But some of the basic principles are the same. It's really about self-revelation and, you know, having the most expressive instrument possible. So, so well, you know, going to the movement mm. uh, world, what what is that? Just like how, how would you describe that? Well, it's hard because it's it's become so personal. But if you wanted to link it to some kind of lineage um, that I th- that people would recognize. I would say that Lecoq's work has something to do with my understanding of training an actor movement-wise, um, and Grotowski's work has a great deal to do with it. Um, but I didn't study with either of those maestros, but I have certainly met many of their pupils, and uh, and just sort of forged my own way forward, really, with a a kind of a a technique or a methodology that is designed to, uh, in an abstract way, first of all, create a whole range of possible expressions for the actor. And then it sort of boils down to character choices and character study. So, uh, yeah, that's that's what I do. So getting back to a little bit more of uh, your your journey. Yeah. Um, so when you did Philippe Goyer's class and you you – became aware of the fact that you kind of sucked. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um but you you were still hooked in a way. Yeah. How did you get past the feeling uh, of sucking and and what were your ne- your steps after that? Well, um I think I was only a young man at the time as in my early 20s and I don't know that I really did get past the feeling of sucking for quite a long time. Um but I was still a creative individual who wanted to get out there and do a whole bunch of things. So I started directing, um, as many of my peers did, you know, in my early twenties, and with a little bit of teaching on the side. And uh, somewhere in the back of my mind, I must have always held the thought that you know I, I should probably stay away from the stage and you know and stay on the other side of the footlights. Were you directing clown shows, or were you directing? I, more I was. Plays? I did both. Yeah, okay. both. Uh, probably two plays for every clown show, just a little bit more in the mainstream than in the clowning world at that time. But, um, you know, there's no substitute for experience. I did that for, well, I'm still doing that, frankly. I mean, I've just continued to do that ever since. I've thrown in some choreography as well. And, you know, my kind of uh, opportunities have become increasingly curious and wonderful. But, um I'm still that kind of eternal student who's kind of figuring out a project, whether it's a play or a clown show or or a human being, every time I come in contact with it. Um, So 
the sucking part stayed kind of hidden, buried under the surface for quite a long time. But I did notice that I was pretty good at telling when other people were dealing with that and helping them to release it or to elaborate on it or to somehow find a way to make it part of their um, creative experience. Um, so why, why do you think that this, this thing that we label as clown has, has been around since essentially human (laughs) you know like i i don't know of too many other things besides eating and going to the bathroom that have as long of a history of clowning in almost every culture religion yeah uh that we know of you know some form of it whether it's the fool the jester the trickster or you know various religious shaman characters and uh why why do you think that's developed throughout time why do you think that's a thing? I think it's a thing because we, for whatever reason, we have right and wrong. And in, along with what is right, we have hierarchies and authorities and, you know, kind of um, populations that try and enforce or, or encourage what is right. And then along with what is wrong, we have the kind of underclass, whether it's, you know, moral or criminal or creative underclass, the people who are doing things that the other people don't think are a good idea. So I feel like there is this uh, endless tension between those two forces. Not, I don't know that they're, I wouldn't, wouldn't call them good or evil because that's a whole other part of our, you know, thing. But... Um, I certainly think that right and wrong has created the tension out of which clowning has emerged and or is a, is a constant because the clown is always in the wrong and challenging the right. Uh, and that in one of two ways, either by embracing the lower status or the lower hierarchy and trying to sort of push against the higher status or by satirizing the higher status and revealing it to be ridiculous or idiotic or corrupt or flawed in some way so i think without that dynamic between you know what is correct and what is mistaken we wouldn't have clowning but fortunately all cultures all religions all societies do have that dynamic and thus it is that clowns must be you know whether or not they have the name clown is not the point it's the for it's like the physical universal forces that must flow between those two polar opposites so how does that fit into what i guess your your personal definition or or what the clown school's methodology of what clown is well uh i hope it fits i hope it fits i feel like one of the first things i will ever say to a student is that the function of clowning is to celebrate your mistakes in public so we, f- we first have to investigate what is a mistake and how, is, how can we encourage our students to admit to them, you know, because in that paradigm that I just offered up, you know, most of us are sort of addicted to appearing to be in the right all of the time. And there's precious few of us who will accept that we're wrong in our relationships, in our, uh, at the workplace, wherever it is. But clowning offers that, well, it doesn't just offer that opportunity. It sort of demands that honesty. Um, So that's where it all begins for me in that uh, embracing of the premise that we're making mistakes a lot of the time. And then to share it with the public and to learn how to celebrate it is really the goal and the 
and the sort of journey of clowning, as far as I can see. Um, and the simplest possible example of that would be in the sort of the the, the f- infamous exercise which most clown students have to face when they're thrown in front of an audience with nothing to do except supposedly to make the audience laugh. And in that moment, they're going to screw up a million times and it's going to be a disaster. And they're going to learn that only by being honest about that disaster do they stand a chance of, you know, moving forward in, in, what, in their work. So, uh, so I think right and wrong are the, are the sort of pillars of understanding what it, what it means to be a clown. Cool. Um, so have you ever had any, in, in, in your own personal journey, have you ever had any uh, brick walls, hurdles, like stage fright or anything that you had to get past? And how did you get past that? I think I would only say, only say that uh, the, my life, has provided me with certain brick walls and it's helpful clowning is very helpful when trying to move through those so when you know if relationships go wrong or if I have strife in my family or if there are kind of uh, you know when you know when you have a problem with somebody and things get stuck which is kind of common unfortunately I think as time passes that happens a lot then then I've I've frequently had to sort of eat humble pie, to put it as frankly as possible, and and clowning helps me to remember that it's okay to eat humble pie and to admit that you're wrong and to back down, or indeed to just use the problem to find the solution. All of these things are sort of stuff that go on in the classroom or in the theater or in the rehearsal. So it sounds a little idealistic. I'm certainly not any good at it, and I've certainly, you know, screwed up irrevocably many many times as a human being mm-hmm. um i hope you have too i trust that we all have yeah, uh, I, I, I think we can honestly <laughs> we can say agree. that you know we've all screwed up yeah we? yeah so but i do so so in the work itself not so many brick walls but in life thousands of them which then relate back to what's going on in clowning and you know at least at, le- at the very least clowning offers a, a perspective to help struggle through stuff so why why do you feel that uh so many performers uh and teachers feel like the word clown is a is like a four-letter word you know quote quote some some people that i've talked to recently like why why do you feel like that is uh the case oh man what what the hell are they talking about Uh, like you mean that they think that it's uh uh, i I know a lot you're you're one of your own one of uh, the clown school is one of the only clown schools that uses the word clown right. in the name right because um, a lot of people feel like it turns away potential students mm. and and a lot of the majority of clown performers have stopped using clown in their marketing mm. you know they they you know are using fools mm. or you know, idiot or, you know, any number of different descriptive terms because they feel like the word clown instantly turns people away that would potentially be open to what they do. Well, yeah, I I don't know that I know the answer. I do know that, you know, in the general public at large, there's supposedly some kind of famous, like, mental disease 
you know, like agoraphobia. What's it called? Colorphobia. That's it, that thing. You know, I've never met a single human being who actually subscribes to that, but nevertheless, it's supposed to be out there. And those uh, horror movies, they're making another one of those movies, you know, where a clown kills a bunch of people right now. I can't remember. Someone quite famous is in it as well. I can't remember. (laughs) Anyway, so those movies obviously don't help. So there's that. There's the sort of, you know, the, the outer circle of the population at large. Maybe within the arts, uh, clowning appears to some to be a kind of a subsect that has too many rules or too many, um, uh, this too elite. I've actually, that I have encountered, you know, people who think that if, if you're a clown that you've, you feel somehow separate from the mainstream. Um, there's also the ancient historical truth that all jesters and fools and vagabonds and clowns are sort of trodden upon by, uh, you know, by those who are sort of higher up the chain. But I don't know that that explains the specific word clowning. I don't really know. I, I think it's daft. You know, what's the difference? I mean, if you can't call yourself a clown, then would you would you need another name for yourself if you're an actor or a trapeze artist or a singer i mean that's what this is for right to help describe what you are so do you feel there's any resistance in in western audiences to to that kind of a thing no not really i mean the one thing that i'm not sure about is whether it has a specific meaning to an american audience that is different from a european audience i mean primarily in my experience in Europe is that clowns are beloved and that people flock to see them, you know. So perhaps there's a little kind of chasm in the culture of difference there. I just, but I mean, but I th- at large, I, th- I don't I th- think so. I think so. an American audience, like, was so inundated with, like, McDonald's, yeah. you know, Ronald McDonald. Yeah. And before that, Bozo the Clown. Yeah, sure. And, uh, I mean, I don't know if, did you, have you ever watched any of those old Bozo the Clown no, shows? No, I never saw them. They're kind of creepy. Right. Like, I mean, <laughs> honestly, but that was like, like a Like Mr. A Rogers kind of creepy? Uh, Mr. Rogers is awesome compared right, you know, to like, Bozo. This is, this is, you know, and it goes back to sort of my philosophy about why there is a, why there is a thing called cholerophobia. It's yeah. like, I don't think, I don't think that people are afraid of clowns. I think people are afraid of masks. You know, uh. Uh, people are afraid of unrecognizable people. Yeah, okay. You know, like that things that, you know, scary masks that, you know, don't, are, you know, inaccessible. And, yeah. And, and they, uh, and when a person puts on this, this image, because the, the image of a clown is an incredibly powerful image. Yeah. You know, and it. it and if the wrong person puts it on, it can be scary as hell. Yeah. You know, like if a, if a terrible performer, you know, a cigar-smoking alcoholic yeah, for yeah. real, like, dons that stuff, you know, it, it can be scary. It can be I super guess scary. that's why The Simpsons created Krusty, right? Uh, to satirize that. Exa- exactly. I mean, the, I imagine 
the cliche of the drunken birthday party clown yeah. came from somewhere. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it did. You know, like I didn't have any birthday party clowns growing up as a kid, but I grew up in the country. And yeah. <laughs> I, you know, Krusty was one of my first experiences <laughs> with a clown, you know, or with I, that kind of wheel. I also think, though, that you're, you're onto something when you say, you know, I mean, kids don't like concealed faces in, in that way. Yeah. But, but I do think that um, maybe... Uh, when I when I was growing up and also as a sort of th- when I first started going to the theater a lot um, clowns didn't theatrical clowns didn't really have all that makeup slathered on them circus clowns always have but you know in the theater like uh, and, and Lecoq himself was really just stuck a little nose on a normal face and that was clowning you know in the European almost in the European mainstream for a long time so well, could, that might have something to do with the less, um, you know, the lesser amount of fear. Well, you got the like the early American clowns that, uh, you know, Americans don't even recognize as clowns. Like yeah, the Marx Brothers and yeah, Chaplin sure. and That's Buster right. Keaton and That's all right. these guys. You know, Chaplin was the one that had the most makeup out of all of them. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, not very much. Yeah, and it, it 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 was pretty minimal. The 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 circus clown makeup, I think, is is largely what created some of those images and i mean even i think uh you know the really good circus clowns you know like the first emmett kelly Mm -hmm. and and people like that like had had the right sensibilities Mm -hmm. where you were never afraid of them no that's you know um but you know you go back to bozo yeah and it's a scary image you know it's a gruff guy like interacting with children in sort of a rough way yeah being kind of aggressive, yeah. you know, picking kids up out of the audience and putting them on like fake horses and things. I mean, it's it's weird. <laughs> and, and it's the stuff and, of nightmares. Isn't it? Yeah, and you know, early fifties TV. Yeah, was kind of sure. a weird thing. Sure. Which then inspired Stephen King to write something like it. Right. You know. Right. Which sort of perpetuates the myth of the spooky image of a clown. Yeah. Because it, it is scary, and I mean, it can be used in an interesting way. I mean, yeah. I think Killer Clowns from Outer Space was funny. Yeah, you know, like, and and I think that kind of stuck to largely what you know some clown philosophy was actually. I think in the movie that was interesting. Yeah, I, I you guess know, you're like right. the the fact that they were these creatures of fantasy, and mm-hmm. like everything they did was ridiculously stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> so that it works. Like it wasn't scary, right? You know. Like what they did, but you know, then the, you you obviously have like people ran with John Wayne Gacy's photo of him as a clown. Yeah. He really wasn't a clown all that much. He no. was like a neighborhood birthday party clown, maybe once or twice his whole life. Right. Well, but like the, the news people ran with that image in the photo in the papers, and that became the killer yeah, clown. Yeah, it has uniquely sort of entered into this sort of horror world over here and that just has not happened uh, in in Europe at all so uh, that must have a lot to do with it but I was thinking also when you said uh, when you talk about Keaton and Chaplin and so on you see to me and maybe I am just a total snob but I can't believe that that people wouldn't recognize that those guys were clowns but well, I, I guess the, they don't sometimes. Uh, the same person you ask you know who says prominently that they are completely and 100% afraid of clowns, mm. will still go pay $500 to go see a Cirque du Soleil oh, show yeah, of course. and not realize that they're going to see a clown show. Right, exactly. You know, not, and be totally amazed and enthralled with 
with the show. Yeah. And, and because it's not somebody dressed as Bozo yeah. making balloon animals, yeah. they don't associate yeah. Clown with that. Yeah. You know, and it's – and I – like, I, I th- there are some great American circus clowns out there. But they know how to use the image. They know mm-hmm. how to perform in those characters. They know how to play to the audience and not make people scared. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I think that's an extremely amazing talent that is pretty rare. Yeah. And there's a lot more people out there that throw on that outfit. <laughs> and terrify the Than really should be throwing on that outfit. Right. You know, like, the, you know, I mean, there is definitely something to say to being a scary clown. And I mean, there are some really interesting, scary mm-hmm. clowns out there, performers mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are good, who know what they're doing. And that's exactly what they're trying to do right. is be scary, you know? And, but, you know, and I don't think those people are necessarily hurting no. the image, no. you know, but I, I, I think it's, you know, you know, uncle Bob, who's trying to be fun for the kids. <laughs> who goes out to the Halloween store and buys a bozo costume and then tries to entertain a bunch of yeah. nephews. Don't do it, Uncle Bob. It's just a bad idea. <laughs> you know, you're just going to end up with a bunch of kids crying. <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, have you have you had any any issues in, in your career teaching where people have, have been turned off, like to, like in the school system or – potential students that have come to your class and been like, whoa, this is something, you know, I don't know what this is. This is weird. Well, I will say, you've just reminded me, actually, I had the most spectacular email not that long ago from someone who said that um, uh, he had grown up with an outright terror of clowns. And it became so bad that he began to attack clowns if and when he saw them. And most recently, that's intense. At some kind of an event, I think it was like a birthday party in a park or something. He'd assaulted a guy dressed in a clown costume and been arrested, <laughs> arrested for it. <laughs> and his therapist had told him that he needed to work through his issues, perhaps by going to clown school. <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> oh Jesus! Indeed. Wow. So I had this image of this guy showing up to my class and people starting to get into clown outfits, and he just going <laughs> ape Bonkers shit on them right. and starting attacking them. <laughs> Anyway, so um, I mean, like I, I would maybe maybe just see him curl up in the fetal position. Yeah, quite possibly. <laughs> anyway, but that uh, that has currently remained uh, just an email conversation, and nothing hasn't didn't go beyond. Hasn't gone beyond, not yet. Yeah, you gotta you gotta keep us updated on yeah, that. Yeah, I will do for sure. <laughs> uh, maybe you'll wind up doing a podcast with that guy. Um, anyway, so but other than that, no. That there, I've certainly had some students who were a little taken aback by the very abrupt nature of certain kind of clowning experiences who've been and I've had some students who have have reached a well, how would you say I've had a kind of a meltdown I've had meltdowns and I've had sort of psychic blocks that have occurred right in front of everybody which can be a little scary like on at least two occasions working with two different students I can remember they reached a point in the exercise where they stopped and they couldn't go any further. And when I started trying to direct them through the exercise, like a whole other voice emerged to tell me no, that they weren't going to do it. So I have had those kind of experiences which are right on the edge of... Why do you think something like that would happen? 
it's guesswork i'm only an armchair you know psychologist uh so i am just guessing but i get the feeling that um well i had a student recently who said this they said astonishingly they said um i don't believe that it's necessary to be vulnerable i prefer to remain private she said when refusing to do an exercise so when pushed i think that a kind of a whatever is wounded inside may in fact emerge to tell me the teacher in this case to kind of back off and to leave it alone it's like another identity perhaps that's that's been buried in there oh, maybe they're not yet capable of handling the clown absolutely you know, absolutely because it is an incredibly revealing thing yeah I mean, it's it's yeah. hard to be that open for sure yeah and i think uh you know there's something particular about the way that clowning opens you and sort of bears you you know in front of an audience and uh if you have something that you're ha- which is true for some people they have something that they're hanging on to dearly as a kind of a private thing that they won't ever they don't wish to reveal then it doesn't you know the 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 prompt does not have to be tell us your deepest darkest secrets the prompt can simply be stand in front of an audience and wait and see what happens but the person suddenly accesses this inner secret and feels terribly challenged like it's going to burst out without them being able to control it so i've seen that on several occasions and i can get a little hairy a lot of skeletons in people's exactly closets. Exactly that, exactly that. And, you know, I do acknowledge that it's not my place to necessarily go there, but it, but sometimes it happens before you can stop it, you know. I mean, it's uh, interesting. I've been uh, – are you familiar with Eric Davis, the Red sure, Bastard? Sure, He's been ex- sort of experimenting a lot with getting the audience to open up yeah. in those ways, which yeah. is – creating is creating some really interesting moments that's right like during his shows yeah which has been fascinating to watch yeah i saw a i saw an english uh comedian slash clown working on similar principles at a festival a while ago and um and he really uh he, he really s- scared some people not because of his makeup or his you know the other thing we were talking uh-huh. about but he really got into some people's minds and yeah yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's possible for yeah. sure yeah so on that note what 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 is the difference between a clown show and a in a play in a regular play uh, like what what makes a clown show a clown show well i think there are some sort of basic principles I, I, it's pretty tough to do a clown show without direct interaction with the audience so whilst there are many plays that have direct interaction with the audience, usually they are on a kind of a tight track in terms of their architecture. So even if an actor di- addresses the audience directly, they're not expecting the audience to talk back or you know, there may be moments for laughs and so on, but it's pretty tightly controlled in a play. In a clown show, that's opened up much more to a sort of free exchange between the clown and the audience. So I say something, you react, I listen to your reaction, I work with it, I build on it, or maybe I bring you onto the stage, or I come and sit on your lap, or, you know, we dare, if you like, in the clown arena, we dare to take the interaction between clown and audience much, much further. So I think that's a pretty central difference, you know. Um, a play could potentially go way off the rails, you know, if Hamlet, 
you know, was in the middle of a soliloquy and actually started interacting with the audience in a spontaneous manner, the purists would, you know, right. go nuts. So there's that. Um, there's, and, and by the same token, the, the dramaturgy of a clown show has to be much more open as a result. And then you can also say that, you know, clown work is typically uh, a little riskier for that reason and others. There's sometimes many more physical risks. Um, there can be a lot more prevalence of image-related work, a lot less language. Uh, so there's various different ingredients. But I think, that for me, it all boils down to the, uh, the dynamic between the, the clown and the audience and how that is unique. Well, I mean, the... A comedy style that's incredibly popular right now is the the improv mm. comedy. How does the how does the clown world relate to the kind of work that they're doing in improv? That, yeah, that is sort of mainstream, accessible to yeah a large audience. I feel like we're cousins. I think clowning and improv folks are definitely cousins, and there's there's a similar uh, similarity in some ways. Um, but there are differences also. I th improv is still pretty highly structured. So the moment to talk to the audience is is carefully organized, usually at the beginning. Give us an idea. Thank you very much. And now we go and you listen, you watch and you listen until we're done. Uh, clowning doesn't have that kind of infrastructure, or at least it doesn't have to, so that the opportunities for the back and forth are much more spontaneous. Sometimes they're much narrower and smaller but more consistently visited over the course of a show um, so that you get the feeling that the, there's any moment the clown could be talking directly to you and actually listening to you and working with your response so that's one thing the other thing that I always think I love improv and I have dear friends who are you know wonderful at it but I do think that improv is rooted in the in the wit and in the mind and in the kind of brilliant interactions between what the brain is thinking and what the mouth manages to say and as a result it's a it's not cerebral exactly because it can get you know totally physical improv but it's sort of i just think it's wit based whereas clowning i think is more heart based uh, it's a little bit more about the emotional interactions rather than the intellectual intera interactions between performer and audience right so I'm going to jump around a little bit. Yeah, do um, What brought you to the States? Like, how, how did you, like, so so you took uh, Philippe's class. Yeah. And you, you know, learned that you sucked as a performer. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I did. And then, and then you, you continued on and something brought you over here and something got you teaching uh, the clown school. So, yeah. So bring us through that story. Later. Yeah. Well, I, I came to the States because I married an American, actually. Um, and we're since divorced. But it, that was the... That you met overseas? Yeah, I met her in England. Um, but that was the motive to come to the United States. Um, she was a New Yorker, born and raised, and then had, was spending time in England. So did you live in New York for a while? Yeah, exactly. So w when we moved back to the States, we moved to New York. And I was there for probably six years or six or seven years and how, then long, how long ago was this this was in the late 90s till 2004 so we we so got through 9 11 and all that yeah oh yeah i was there on that day i was not that far away me too um whereabouts were you i i was i was in brooklyn i uh i just moved to new york two weeks before oh wow so you know none of my family actually knew 
where in Brooklyn I was and when the phone's down. Yeah. Like everything went crazy. And yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, we got a long, weird, dramatic tale around that. Yeah, me too. But uh, I was in Brooklyn Heights and I had a job where in, at SUNY Purchase. I don't know if you know where that is, yeah, but yeah, it's yeah. in Westchester. So I always used to have to drive. Uh, across the Brooklyn Track. Bridge and across downtown and just, just a few blocks north of the World Trade Center. And then I would head north on the Henry Hudson. So I was heading north that morning when all the fire trucks started going in the opposite directions. I was – we the night before, we were, uh, we were, in, we were in Bushwick area. Uh, and uh, we were – me and my girlfriend, we were at this Kmart down at, that's in uh, Metropolitan, off Metropolitan. Mm-hmm. And uh, has a – second the the parking lot for the Kmart is on the roof so you could see the whole skyline hmm. and we had just moved to New York two weeks before that and we had not yet visited the World Trade hmm. so we were making jokes about how fun it would be if she got on one tower and I got on the other tower oh, and threw a frisbee <laughs> back and forth like wouldn't that be hilarious we should go visit it tomorrow right and that, this is, that was Monday night because my two days off from the job, the new job that I had was Monday and Tuesday. Hmm. So, and she was still in her, she had an interview Tuesday morning. So after her interview, we were going to go Wow! and we were actually in bed. And then we got woken up by her brother from Canada mm-hmm. calling saying, Hey, did you see what happened mm-hmm. on the news? And we were going to go later on that day. Fortunately, you know, but yeah. uh, and then like immediately following her brother, she got a call from the woman that she was supposed to have the interview with, Oof. who was on the BQE at that sort of curve down uh, by uh, like the the Brooklyn Bridge area. Yeah, I know exactly what where you uh, you're very you close get to see the whole to thing. the whole thing, and yeah. the, like the woman was calling her from oh, that, describing what was happening, and oh, saying, "I don't think the interview is going to happen today." <laughs> No and, way. You know, and then on that went. But fortunately, we're, you know, late sleepers. Yeah, And right. she had a job interview that day, so right. we didn't go. <laughs> God damn it. But that, that, that was a, a pretty intense Yeah, that was time. quite a time. So, so, so you were, so, yeah, you were teaching we, over there? You were teaching I acting? I was or? teaching, uh, uh, yeah, clowning and acting. Clowning uh, and it, acting. Was, it was uh, a little of everything. Um, and I was directing a lot. Did you get involved with the New York clown scene back then at all? Well, a little bit. I was in. Uh, I taught at the Actors Center. Um, I knew then, and I continue to know Christopher Bayes quite well, and he's you know one of the preeminent clown teachers on the East Coast. Um, and uh, some of his uh, circle and mine intersected, and I'd certainly directed a few clown shows that went nicely over there. Uh, but then uh, my ex-wife and I got divorced, and um, I, she, in fact, moved to California, and I did also because we had a child, so I was mindful of staying in touch with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I arrived here in 2004. I did a job for L.A. Opera, and since then, I've, as I mentioned earlier, I've done a lot of uh, choreography for opera as well. And uh, I began looking for work here in the university system and independently as a director and all of those things, and slowly but surely sort of built the portfolio out here. And then when Orlando, who I mentioned earlier, moved to L.A., we started the clown school together because we both knew that we had this passion for it and that uh, we weren't going to satisfy that passion exclusively in academia and we wanted something that was more free-spirited to to work on. 
so does the, does the clown school have a storefront or no we we use a studio uh in hollywood that's run by a dear colleague who's a dancer um and we've been there now for we originated somewhere else but we've been there in uh, blackbird dance studios it's called for about four years and it's perfect it has the an ideal space it has a little color to it so it feels like it has character and it's lots of room so uh very happy with it cool where where do you see uh, where do you want the future of the clown school to move well, towards well uh the the great tormentor as he's known my my ex teacher philippe golier is coming here I, you know this i think yeah. uh, later this year and in part that's because clown school has been able to sponsor his visit um what i originally started as a business to satisfy my own artistic itch that's the meter oh it is oh how amazing i have to go feed the meter again. all right well actually you know what i have to head to an appointment in a few minutes so uh, maybe if we do a video we can talk more about that okay uh let's 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 sort of uh wrap it up i sure. guess so if uh people are interested in finding out more about what you do and seeing shows and maybe getting involved with the clown school what should they do they should simply go to the internet and type in www.theclownschool.com and just go from there contact us and we'll start talking that easy all right everybody do it do it thank do you it so now. much brian it's great right, to man. talk to you thanks take care bye clown is free clown is life Cloudiest Cloudiest life. Oh, sorry about the abrupt ending to the interview. The time on the parking meter ran out, and he had to go to another appointment. But never fear, my faithful followers. We plan to do a documentary profile on David for the video series in the near future, so stay tuned. Make sure you check out David's website in the post description, and check out his links to buy tickets to his one-man show. Hopefully, you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and our video series on YouTube. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr, Vine, Google+, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Go to the website at afoolsidea.com and sign up to our newsletter. Check out episodes of the documentary series and watch all the extra fun bits of clown goodness that we post on a regular basis. Until next time, thanks for listening to A Fool's Idea.